Where, where do you go in the Bible to share the gospel? Many of you probably have gone to places like Romans, places like the Gospel of John. How, how many of you go to Genesis to share the gospel of all things? This has been our heart, this, this heart that we have as a people of God to recognize the narrative that God has written in the scriptures from start to finish, not just to tell us a good story, not just to tell us about the history of his people, but to help us see God. The whole point of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is so that we can see the gospel that's resident in the story, the gospel of God that shows up through the story of how he interacts with his people. I think maybe it's a lot like what we see when Jesus is revealed himself on the night of his resurrection to his disciples in that upper room. There they are, there they are cowering in fear, and Jesus shows up. He kind of comes through the door, and he tells them this. He says in Luke chapter 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything you see in Genesis, in Exodus, in Leviticus, and all the way through to Revelation is the story about me. It's the story of the gospel. And that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to connect the gospel to the special promises that God has made to his people starting in Genesis chapter 3 and working our way through the Old Testament. These covenants, these promises that God made to Adam and then to Noah and this week his promise to Abraham. All of these promises that give us a glimpse of this future person, this future savior, this future deliverer, this future person who would fulfill all the promises that he made thousands of years before to show that God had a master plan of salvation. And as Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, it was this master plan of salvation that was fixed from before the foundations of the world, before God even spoke the world into existence, this plan of salvation that he had was already underway, was already in work. And so Satan couldn't mess up God's plan of salvation. Adam and Eve, however rebellious they were, couldn't mess up God's plan of salvation. And Abraham, as we're going to see this morning, can't mess up God's plan of salvation. That is the the message in a nutshell. To behold the mystery of God, this unveiling, this mystery of God, this, this revelation of God to himself, that, that as he steps us into history, he's revealing just another way that he intends to rescue the world through this future deliverer. And so, when Simeon and Anna, that we see in Luke chapter 2, they're there in Jerusalem. They're there in the temple. And it says they're waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, the Redeemer that would come, who was promised. Why were they waiting? Well, because they, they knew that God was about to show up in a way they couldn't even imagine. He was going to come in the form of a baby. Emmanuel, God with us, and he was going to bring salvation. This first coming of Christ. And they had no idea 
that that wasn't going to be the only coming. And so as they're waiting for the consolation of Israel, they, they help to set an example, a model for us, a model of waiting. And as they were waiting in the first century, we who are now in the 21st century are still waiting. We're waiting for that second advent, that second coming of Christ. We're waiting for the completion of the promises that God gave all the way back to Adam and Noah and Abraham. We're waiting for God to be faithful, not just in bringing a Savior, but it's set in motion all of the promises that we find to these individuals that we'll see in a future day. And so we celebrate the beginnings of Advent, maybe a little prematurely. We're just a couple of weeks uh, away from where we should be starting, but maybe we've kind of ushered this in with uh, the cold weather that we've been enjoying today. We're going to be looking through Genesis chapter 11 and 12 to start. And I want to draw your attention to this story of Abraham, the story of one that God sets his affection on. And there are so many things that we could draw out of this story but I've just chosen five truths this morning, five truths that we're, we'll discover about the gospel, five truths about salvation that God has written into this story to say, look at me, pay attention. You're gonna see through this story, you're gonna see Christ in this story. It'll be evident, it'll be obvious. The deliverer will come. So as we start in Genesis chapter 11, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to, just to use the Bible in front of you Genesis is the first book of the Bible. I think it's on page 8 where we're going to start. Genesis chapter 11. The first truth that we're going to discover is this. God brings salvation through his own initiative. God brings salvation through his own initiative. Genesis chapter 11 is this story of the Tower of Babel. You are familiar with this story at the very beginning. How the people who are in this this land, Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia, the, the hometown of Abraham and his family centuries later, this is, the, this is the ground zero, as it were, of where God moves Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and moves his family to Canaan. It's to help set the context for this delivery work, this salvation work that God intends to do. And we find in verse 10, we find that these are the generations of Shem. Shem, who was the second son of Noah. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then trailing down through that list, we finally come to this family. In chapter 11, verse 27, it says, These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of Chaldeans. This ancient city, Sumerian city, located in southern Iraq, was known for its pagan idolatry, its pagan worship. They worshipped the, the god um, uh, Nanar, which was the god of fertility. And that's interesting to our story because as we're going to find a little later on that, that Sarai, who is Abram's wife, is barren. It's against this backdrop of this family and against the backdrop of, of this setting that we find that God will intervene, that they'll begin to, to make their way out of Ur of the Chaldeans and make their way towards Canaan. Notice in verse 31. 
Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his, uh, his son Abram's wife. They went forth together from Ur, the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The Genesis record doesn't indicate why there was a settling. It doesn't even indicate why they began to move, but we find more about this story centuries later in Acts chapter 7. Stephen will talk about the work of God in, the, in developing and creating this new nation under Abraham. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. I want you to notice that it was God who appeared to Abraham. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who made himself known. It was God who took the lead, who stepped in and revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham was not living for God. Abraham did not love God. God took the initiative. Abraham had no credentials by which God could say, Ah, hey, look, there's a guy. Maybe he's a good candidate for being the father of a new nation. 400 years after Abraham, Joshua would write this commentary about the, the, the family um, dynamic of Nahor, or Terah, and Abraham by saying this. Joshua said to the people, This is what the Lord God of Israel says long ago. Your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, uh, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Yet in spite of their idolatry, in spite of their rebellion against God in their hearts, their worship of other gods, their affection for those who were not God, and in spite of their half-hearted obedience in only making it to Haran and not making it all the way to Canaan, God continued to extend his, his plan to draw this family to himself. God did, did not give up. He did not change his mind. He didn't have second thoughts. We find now in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, that God shows up to Abraham again, now in the context of this new city, Haran. He says this, and as we read, I want you to notice again the, the initiating work of God in making happen by his own power what he has promised. Notice, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your country and from your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What God broke up in Genesis chapter 11 by dividing those who had remained in Ur of the Chaldees at the Tower of Babel, he had uh, confused their language. He had spread them across the globe. Now God, through Abraham, is going to draw those families back together underneath a spiritual head, the head of Abraham. And notice, I will show you this land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you 
and make your name great. God will do it. He will make it happen. He takes the initiative. It depends on his power. What God has initiated, what God has promised, God will do. As we evaluate this story, as we stand back and appreciate the initiating work of God, we must also evaluate and look at our own hearts and be encouraged by the fact that we are dependent upon God's initiative. We too are dependent on God's initiative. We, just like Adam, before our conversion, we weren't looking for God, we weren't living for God, and we did not love God. We find that in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, when it says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But in spite of our condition, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of the fact that we wanted nothing to do with God, God took the initiative in our lives and drew us to himself. Those of us who enjoy relationship with God through faith Enjoy that relationship because of the work and the call of God on our life, as we see in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This new family that we're going to talk about here as we continue this story. But how did it happen? How did faith come? How did you begin to believe in God? Well, you believed this way, as we find in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, meaning not because of your heritage, not because of your parents or your grandparents who loved God. It wasn't because of your heritage, nor the will of the flesh. You didn't will yourself to become a Christian. You didn't seek after God, nor the will of man. Somebody else didn't will you to that. They didn't press you into conversion, but it came through the will of God. It was through his initiative. Rejoice and be humbled at the initiating work of God in your life. Because what God draws to himself, what God initiates, God completes. The fruit and the fruit of that initiative, the way that we know that that work of conversion has happened is is it creates a changed life. Because what God starts, God finishes. He is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. We see that in Philippians chapter one, verse six. It says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God initiates, God completes. And so you'll begin to know that true conversion has happened in your life, that true faith is resident in your life. If you see the fruit of that changed life taking place, 2 Peter makes that clear in chapter 1, verse 10. Peter is writing to this church, and he wants to, he wants to encourage them. You can have a secure calling. You can, you can know and, and be confident in the fact that, that God has, has called you to himself. How will you know? It says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The qualities that he's mentioned in the previous verses in verses 5 to 8, faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And it's not that we do these things perfectly, but we, we begin to see the work of God in our life to help us do it better than we did it yesterday. 
that as a, as a dad, and I'm relating with my kids what, what used to be the pattern of, of edginess or frustration when they were disobedient. Uh, hopefully, there's more patience and forbearance and there's kindness in the correction that happens. You see the fruit of the power of the Spirit, that indwelling Holy Spirit working in your life. And you can say, my calling and election are sure because the fruit of God's initiating in my life is leading me to greater fruitfulness, greater obedience. Has God initiated a work of salvation in your life? Do you see the fruit? Is it growing? Is it flourishing? Is it increasing? Is there greater patience, a greater deepening love and affection for the, the body that God has put you a part of? You see, God brings salvation by his own initiative, and that's good news. And as we continue to step into the story, we see next that God brings salvation through a family. God brings salvation through a family. Notice in verse, verse 2 of chapter 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how is God going to do that? How is God going to make Abraham a nation? Is he going to help them conquer a nation? Is he going to inherit a nation? How is this going to take place? Well, we find the answer to that in verse 7. Notice, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Well, it seems really clear that God is going to, he's going to make Abraham a nation by giving him kids. But there are two massive problems in the way. The first problem, as we see in verse 4 of chapter 12, Abraham is too old. It says at the second part of this verse, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And now he's made his way to, to Canaan, and God is reestablishing this promise to him, making this promise to him. But, but, but Abraham is way beyond childbearing years. His seed is dead. He's too old. Second problem we find in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, is that Sarah is barren. It says, now Sarah was barren. She had no children. Paul emphasizes the hopelessness of this situation in Romans chapter 4, in speaking about them. He says in verse 19, He, who is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, Paul is speaking about what will happen 25 years from this point. And if he was dead at, 20, at 75, he's going to be even debtor <laughs> at 100. From all, for all intents and purposes, this was a hopeless situation. But that was by design. These are promise-limiting issues if they depend on human power. But that was the point. That was God's design. God wasn't wringing his hands, wondering how he was going to pull this off. He chose Abram and Sarah for this very reason to demonstrate that salvation will come through the power of God and through the power of God alone. Ten years would go by from this initial promise, this promise we see in Genesis chapter 12. And certainly Abraham's beginning to wonder, did I understand this message clearly? We find in Genesis chapter 15, just turn the page 
to verses 1 to 5, there's a conversation that now happens between Abram and the Lord. It says, after these things, in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look, look towards the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham's like, God, I think we got our wires crossed. I, I, I don't think I understood the message the way you intended. Um, when I thought about offspring, I thought it was going to be my own kids. But maybe you have a different idea of offspring. And God says, no, you're right. When I said offspring, I meant offspring. I meant your very own son. And I will bless you with a son. I will bless you with offspring. I will bless you, Abram, with a family. This family that will be the center of all the families. In you, all the families, all the nations will be blessed. And from this chapter, chapter 12, to chapter 17, God will reinforce this promise to Abram on 12 different occasions. He'll use this word seed or offspring to confirm in 12 different occasions that he intends to give Abram a son. Genesis 15, 18. To your offspring I will give this land. Genesis 16, verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered or uh, for multitude. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be faithful. I will give you a seed. And we'll find as we move to the pages of the New Testament that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Isaac was that initial fulfillment. Isaac was that, that immediate promise that was fulfilled by God, but he was just a foretaste. He was just a shadow. He was just a glimpse of what God was going to do in the future through a future son, through a future seed to, to in fact bring the nations together underneath the, the headship of Jesus himself. God wasn't going to save through a conqueror. God was going to save through a son, through an offspring. He was going to save by making a family. Isaac, of course, was that initial seed, but Jesus would be that future spiritual seed. That seed that we find in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, which says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. How is God going to accomplish this? How are all the nations that were now spread across the globe going to enjoy the blessing of the family relationship in Abraham? How is this even imaginable? Only in the mind of God, he knew that through this future seed, Jesus, that he would bring it all together 
through salvation, through the work of Christ in creating a new family. And Jesus brings us into that family. This seed who would bring us into Abraham in a whole new way, this family of God. You must be born again, Jesus will say to Nicodemus. You must be born in a spiritual way, not just a physical way. And the implications of that family are comprehensive. As you know, we have had in our church, I think, 11 brand new babies over the last couple of months. There's a brand new baby in the back, and there was one in the first service. Those parents and those of you who have kids understand that everything that that child gets, everything that they need is dependent upon that family. Their existence, their life is wrapped up in how that family will provide for them in the same way. And it's a beautiful picture. In the same way, God has placed every believer into a family. And in the same way, it is only through the context of that family can you enjoy the benefits of the relationship that you have with God. The, the survival in the spiritual life is dependent upon the family. All of the good things that God has made available to us through himself comes through the conduit of his family. The spiritual maturity that we enjoy, the encouragement that we receive, the the, the comfort that we, that we uh, participate in, the service that we give, the mission that we've been called to, the worship that we do on Sundays and throughout the week. Everything that we do as believers thrives as it happens in the context of the family that God has given to us, this spiritual family. So if we neglect the family that God has put us into, we push away and push aside the means by which God intends to bless you as an individual and the means by which you can bless others who are part of this family. The health of the whole depends upon the participation of every family member. So God takes the initiative in salvation. God brings salvation through this seed and he creates a family and then we see, in, in, uh, as Genesis 15 continues, that God brings salvation through faith. It happens through faith. Notice, as this passage in Genesis 15 continues to unfold, in verse 5, it says, He brought him outside. Speaking of God bringing Abram outside, he tells him to look towards the heavens and to number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he says to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham doesn't look around and say, that's ridiculous. That is absolutely absurd. How is this going to happen? Rather, we find in verse 6 that he is the model of something significant. And he believed the Lord. And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. God just confirmed to Abraham, you're going to not just have one seed. Your offspring are going to fill this earth. And Abraham says, I believe. I believe that you will do what you say you will do. This significant statement, Abraham believes and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham then would set the precedent for how to be part of this family. This family of God, not by lineage, not by heritage alone, but primarily through this spiritual 
see this figurehead of Christ. They would need to be united to the family in faith. Salvation would come through faith alone. Faith in God who can do the impossible. Faith in God who calls us away from the comforts of life, away from family, away from country, away from all the props in life so that we can come and, and see that God is faithful and dependable as Abraham found him to be. Faith in a God who, who makes big promises and is able to make them happen. Abraham would be the model of that faith. And Abraham's family will not just emulate faith to his immediate seed, but it would emulate faith to all of us who would be part of that family, as we see in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is great news. If you're here today and you would say, God could never love me because I have messed up way too much. Or God could never accept me because of the of the the baggage that I bring. I've gone too far. I've failed too much. I've sinned too greatly. The message of Abraham, this pagan idol worshiper, is a message that God will overcome the the, uh, brokenness of your life and he will uh, draw you to himself through faith. It is God who places his righteousness onto us because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we believe in the perfect work of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is placed over your life so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. Faith is what is, is in that way, the, the transaction of faith in God calling our hearts to believe is what makes us acceptable into his, in his sight. And those who believe in him will wait on him. Those who believe in God will wait on God. We've alluded to this already. The initial promise that that Abram receives happens when he's 75. The final culmination of that promise won't take place until 25 years later. But Abraham has already begun to develop this pattern of believing, this pattern of faith, which translates into a waiting confidence on God to make good on his promise, to carry it through, that God is faithful and dependable. And he may not have given me a son yet, but he'll give me, he'll give me one in time. And those who believe on him will wait on him. They won't strive. They won't have to do God's job for him. They don't have to take matters into their own hands. They don't have to worry or be anxious. They can enjoy rest and peace. They don't have to be frustrated or discouraged or dissatisfied with the plight in which you're living. They don't have to be afraid. They can trust in the power of God. I love how the psalmist puts this weight on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That is the the secret of uh, the Christian life. 
in coming to believe God, not just for salvation, but coming to believe God in every moment of our life. God takes the initiative. He saves us through a seed. He brings us to salvation through faith. And in Genesis 22, we see that God brings salvation through a lamb. He brings salvation through a lamb. God would raise up this nation through Isaac, who was the initial part of this promise. But but God had another lesson for Abram to learn. He's been waiting for so long, for 25 years, for God to finally uh, give him this promise. But God wants to help Abraham understand that it's not about the gifts, Abraham. The promise that I'm giving to you is, is not a son. The promise that I'm giving to you is a promise of myself. That is, the, the, the full promise, the, the full prize that you will receive is, is me. It was not about the gifts from God. It was about God who was the giver of good gifts. And so the promise to Abraham is this promise of God himself. He is the prize. And to help Abraham understand the significance of, of this promise being God, he, he takes him through this this test that we see in Genesis chapter 22. It says in verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I want you to take your son, the one you've been waiting for for 25 years, and I want you to put him to death. I want you to do the unthinkable, Abraham. I want to to test you and to see if if you're delighting in the promise of a gift or you're delighting in the promise of me. So what does Abraham do? We find his response in verse three. And I pray that this is all of our response. I don't find it to be often my first response. So Abraham rose early. He rose early. Early in the morning. He had early morning obedience because he had early morning confidence in a God who was powerful. God who was able. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And then there's this conversation that happens between Isaac and Abraham. I know we're going to, to Moriah to, to, to perform this sacrifice, but, but, but where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? How are we going to get this? And we find in verse 7, Isaac says to his father, my father, and he says, here I am, my son. He said, behold the face, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. So they were both of them together. God will provide a lamb. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to walk by faith. We're going to do the unthinkable, but we're going to believe that God is able either to resurrect you, as we find from Hebrews chapter uh, 11, that, that, Abra- that, that Abraham was, was committed to this and, and believed that God could even resurrect the dead. But this picture of the lamb 
is a picture of faith, this believing heart of Abraham to trust that God was able to provide for this family. And God did, in fact, provide a lamb as you read through the rest of the story. But that lamb would just be a picture, this picture of a future lamb, right? And this word for lamb that is used in Genesis chapter 12, it's the first time this word is used in Genesis, in the, in the Bible so far. The next time we find this word for lamb that is used for sacrifice is when we get to Passover in Exodus chapter 12. The connection of the lamb, the, the lamb that God would provide and the lamb that would be this picture of this Passover lamb that we find in Exodus. Of course, Jesus is the lamb of God. Jesus is this Passover lamb as we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is the lamb of God. As John the Baptist will say in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Lamb will die. He will sacrifice himself for those who need to be redeemed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, says how it all takes place. It says, knowing that you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as, as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the way. He is the only way to God. He was the only sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God for us, he is the only way. And Jesus calls us to that same kind of sacrifice, that same kind of laying down. That is the worship and the obedience of Christ to, to submit himself to the will of the Father was not just the means by which we could enjoy the benefits of salvation and forgiveness, but it was also the precedent that Christ set for us in how we would express that same kind of worship back to God and that same kind of love to one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable spiritual worship. That God has set for us the pattern in Christ to lay it all down. Lay down the gifts that God has given to us so that we can delight in the giver. Lay down the comforts if God asks us to lay them down so that we can enjoy the, the benefits of, the, of, the, of a God who provides to uh, who promises to meet our needs according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. To point to Christ through the challenges that we experience. To worship God with our all, without holding back. In John chapter 15, verses 12 to 13, this is the night before Jesus would be crucified. He is explaining what love would look like to his disciples when he says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now how is this going to show up? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has set the precedent. Jesus has given us the example on how 
to spend ourselves for the sake of love for Christ and love for Christ's body, Christ's family. We are called to that kind of, of life, that kind of sacrifice. And finally, God brings salvation to lead us to himself. God brings salvation to lead us to the true prize, to the true promise, and that is him. He is that prize. As Abraham will see in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, so Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. He saw God. By laying down his son Isaac, he got to see that God was dependable. God was faithful. God was able to make good on his promise. God was able to carry them through this hardship. Abraham believed God and set the precedent for us in believing. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 in continuing to, to describe this, this family relationship, this sonship that we enjoy through Christ that connects us back to Abraham, notice what the result is. Notice what the final destination is. When the fullness of time had come, it says in verse 4, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. It doesn't end there. The adoption of sons is meant to lead us to something greater. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has called us to himself. He's called us to intimacy. He's called us to relationship. He's called us to delight in the giver more than we delight in the gift. But so often, and this is confession time, so often, and maybe you are like me, that so often my prayers have very little to do with exalting God and very much to do about alleviating my own comfort, about asking God to fix my problems, about asking God to come and take care of the challenges that I have. Now, that's appropriate and that's good because as we do that, we're, we're trusting in God. But, but how much greater would it be in recognizing the problems that we have to allow those problems to be a way, a pathway to point us into greater intimacy with God so that rather than wanting relief from pain and without seeing our pain as a means to point us to the greater, the, the one who is able to address that pain and to comfort our hearts in the midst of pain without ever taking it away. And so that in the midst of the pain and the struggle, we can point to God like Johnny Erickson Tata, who for, who for decades has been a paraplegic. And because of her confidence in God, through the hardship that she's experienced, God has maximized her her. Uh, her fruitfulness, her potency, because she has learned to point to God and not ask God to take away her pain. We want strength and not weakness. We want health. We want comfort. We want acceptance. We want freedom. But how often do we pray for the gift instead of the giver? We want God to, to remove the pain and give us more of the gift rather than delighting in the moment that God is helping us 
put our Isaacs on the altar so that we can enjoy the pleasure of Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. The Lord can help to intervene in the midst of my pain. He can give me himself. And that's what God wants to do for us as we're sons of Abraham to lead us into this Abba Father kind of of intimacy with him in relationship that happens only through his son, Jesus. Do you know him this morning? And if you know him, do you enjoy the benefits of this kind of intimacy that he offers to us, he calls us to? May God help us not only to enjoy the benefits of this relationship that we have with him, but commend that relationship to the people around us as they see our lives and they say, you love God. The presence of God is on your life. I see it. May that be true of us. Oh God, thank you for the story of Abraham. And thank you for this future seed, Jesus, who came and allowed us, especially as Gentiles, to enjoy the benefits of the promises you've given to Abraham through faith in your son, Jesus. I pray, God, if there's any this morning who do not know Jesus as their Savior, who have never asked for forgiveness for their sin, who have never bowed the knee in worship to you, who have, never in, who have not invited you into their life to be the Lord and Master of their life, I pray in this moment now that your Holy Spirit would do a work of conviction and lead them to yourself. Take the initiative in their heart. Bring them into the family of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you this week.